We're going to be this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes comes after the books of Psalms and Proverbs, right before Song of Solomon and Isaiah. It'll be right about at the center of your Bibles. And this morning I am going to read for us the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. And my focus will essentially be at the start in verse 2 of these opening verses. And then I just want to give everyone a heads up. It's not going to be so much an exposition of these verses this morning, but really a, a meditation on the message as a whole of Ecclesiastes. So uh, be ready to turn with me in your Bibles to different spots in Ecclesiastes, and we'll spend some time in the book of Genesis as well. I've titled the sermon this morning, A Preface for Life. A Preface for Life. Ecclesiastes chapter one, starting in verse one, listen to what the author says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So reads the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for another opportunity to gather together corporately as a body to worship our risen Lord and Savior. And Father, this morning I pray that as we think about the words of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, that we would take his wisdom, his message to heart, that we would seek to apply it to our lives. And so I pray, God, that these next 45 or 50 minutes or so, that you would help us to be focused on the words of the preacher here from Ecclesiastes. Use them, Lord, to mold us to be more like Jesus. May our love for you grow, our knowledge for you grow, and our likeness of you grow as a result of our time together this morning. Pray all this in this precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, last month, my wife Sarah and I celebrated six years of marriage. 
And we were able to spend a weekend away for our anniversary. And as we typically do on our anniversary weekend, we began to reflect back on our six years of marriage and close to eight or nine years of being together. And uh, one, of the, one of the days, we're reflecting back on our wedding day itself. And as we thought back upon our wedding day, I was a little bit embarrassed because I realized six years later how little I actually remember about our wedding day. I, I don't remember the order of ceremony for our wedding. I don't remember the name of the park that we went to afterwards to take pictures. I don't remember even the name of the country club where our reception was held after the ceremony. I don't remember how many tables were at our reception or how they were organized or what the centerpieces were. I don't even remember the food that we ate that night. And I don't remember this special cake that we ordered that evening that unfortunately we didn't really even get to enjoy because you're getting married and you're busy, but I don't even remember the flavor of that special cake. And honestly, I barely remember the nice things that people said to us during their toasts. There's so little that I remember from our wedding day. And don't worry, I've already confessed this to Sarah, so she knew this was coming. But you know what? As we reflected back on our wedding day and as we took time to think about our six years of marriage, I'm okay with the fact that I don't remember any of those details. Because in the end, none of those details really matter. What matters is that on that day, on, on June 12, 2016, Sarah and I made a covenant before God, before our family, before our friends, to express our commitment together in a lifelong marriage. And in fact, as we prepared for our wedding day, we had so many friends and family members tell us, don't get lost in all of the details of your wedding. A wedding to plan a wedding, and to be fair, Sarah essentially did all of the planning, and I just gave the thumbs up, there's so many details and so much organization that goes into a wedding. And those details are important. Don't misunderstand. They are important. But they're not what is most important. And people told us time and time again, you're not going to remember these details years from now. Remember what's important from this day. Remember the covenant that you are making. And as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes, admittedly we approach a book that is rather complex. We approach a book that oftentimes when we read it, we're left puzzled, we're left confused, we're left unsure of what the preacher here is doing. You know, I've, I've even heard a, a common caricature about Ecclesiastes in describing Solomon. Uh, I've, heard that it, I've heard it said that uh, Song of Solomon is written when Solomon was young and in love and full of youth. Proverbs is written when he's more middle-aged and God has given him the gift of discernment and 
He shares with us in the book of Proverbs some short, pithy, wise sayings. But then we come to the book of Ecclesiastes and we find Solomon in his later years, full of bitterness, full of disdain, full of almost disgust towards the world. And I think to an extent that's the way that a lot of us approach the book of Ecclesiastes. It seems like this guy is just bitter and cantankerous about life. But actually, I want to propose to us this morning that that is the exact opposite of what Solomon, of what the preacher is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. I would say he is writing towards the end of his life, but this is a reflection of life itself from a very incredibly wise man. That's not to say he didn't have regret or that he didn't make mistakes, but he writes the book of Ecclesiastes to help us understand what is life about. You see, we often feel confused or even depressed when we read Ecclesiastes. But I would say understood properly, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to help us live in a way that we would be happy. His message is a message that leads to happiness, to contentment, to joy, to human flourishing. And I think this morning, as we think about our short time together, what I'd like to do is I'd like to answer a very important question. And then I'd like to meditate on some aspects from that question. And the question comes from our text that I read this morning, verse two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Here's the question that I would like us to think about this morning. What does the preacher mean when he says that everything in life, including myself, including all of you, are vanity? What is he communicating? And then subsequently, I'd like to spend the rest of the time thinking about how does that affect the way in which you and I ought to live. So, verse two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Point number one, what does it mean that all is vanity? The translation in English, vanity, it's a good faithful translation. But oftentimes I think it leads us astray to what the preacher is seeking to communicate here. The, the word, the Hebrew word for vanity, it's hevel, it literally means breath or vapor. It's breath or vapor. The preacher's saying all is like a breath, all is like a vapor. But I think a lot of times we approach this word, all is vanity, and we approach Ecclesiastes like an undergraduate student might after they've taken one class in philosophy. They start their courses in the fall, they go home for Christmas break, they took philosophy 101, and their parents asked, what did you learn? Mom and dad, I learned that life is meaningless. There's no point to life. That's what philosophy taught me. And I think that's the way that we oftentimes approach Ecclesiastes. We think that the preacher is saying that all is, in some sense, worthless. 
I think that misses, though, what he's trying to convey when he's saying that all is vanity. Again, the word is more so vapor or a breath. Uh, this past week, I was at a restaurant waiting for a friend to meet me for breakfast. And I was, I was sitting at the restaurant. I was looking across the parking lot. And there was another restaurant across the way. And I was watching smoke come out from the chimney stack of another restaurant. It was obvious that they were doing tons and tons of work in the kitchen. And I was watching this smoke come out, and it was so much white smoke coming out of this tiny little chimney stack. But then the, the amazing thing, and, and you've all seen this, the amazing thing is all of a sudden, the smoke was there, there's so much smoke, and then not even five feet above that, it's all gone. It doesn't even like slowly evaporate. It's all of a sudden just there one minute, and there's so much smoke, and then boom, it's gone. That's what is being conveyed by verse 2. That's what the preacher is saying life is like. It's like that smoke that we've all seen that's there one second and it is gone the next second. And so what is the preacher as he begins his argument in Ecclesiastes? What is he trying to convey to us? He's trying to tell us that life here on this earth is transient. Life is transient. Life is temporary. It's not permanent. And we find this reality all throughout the Bible. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. The psalmist writes, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the wild, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Just listen to this imagery, this vivid imagery that the psalmist is telling us. He's saying, men and women, humanity, we're like the flowers of the field, the grass of the field, so vibrant, and there one day, and then the next day, it's gone. To the point where the psalmist says, the ground where it once sat doesn't even remember that it was there. Life on this earth, believers, is transient. And I think by this word picture that the preacher is using, he's also not only saying that life is transient, but that life is also evasive. It is evasive. You can't control life. Have you ever on a, on a cold morning as you walk out to your car and there's, uh, as, you, as you breathe, there's steam coming out of your mouth, have you ever tried to catch that? Has anyone ever tried to do that? No, of course not. You can't catch it. You can't control it. You can't do with it as you please. And by using this imagery that's saying life is like a breath, life is like a vapor, the preacher's communicating to us that life is evasive. You can't control it. And every single one of us in this room want to control our lives. We want to be the God of our own lives. And the preacher is saying if you live that way, you are living as a fool. Life is transient. Life is evasive. And this may at first sound harsh to us, or it sounds like the, the preacher is being unnecessarily unpleasant, but in fact, he's doing the exact opposite. 
And the preacher isn't inventing anything new. He is reflecting on what has already been taught through the Torah, through the first five books of the Bible. In particular, let's turn quickly with me to the book of Genesis. Why is life vanity? Why is life transient? Why is life evasive? Why is the preacher stating this? In order to answer that question, we must go back to the beginning and remind ourselves what has already taken place. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. And here there is a sort of precursor to the curse that is about to come. There's a warning here that if Adam, if you or Eve, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death will come to you. And we know what happens. We both, in fact, eat of the tree. And we see, turning the one page over in chapter three, starting in verse 17, we see the presence of the curse As God gives the curse to Adam, he says, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. What was the punishment of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Death, the curse. The reality, as God says, that we are made from dust and one day we will return to dust. And my friends, in this side of heaven, in the world that we live in, this curse is permanent. Look with me at Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. What happens? Adam and Eve sin. They are expelled from the garden And there is no possibility to return to the tree of life which promised that they would not die. And that's permanent. No one has ever been able to return to that tree. And Adam and Eve recognize this. They know that life is vanity. They know that it's temporary. Look with me at chapter four of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore her brother Abel. Abel. They named their second son Abel. Well, in Hebrew, the word Abel is the same word that we see in Ecclesiastes. 
Havel, or in the Old Testament way of saying it, Hebel. It's the same word. Adam and Eve name their son Havel. They name their son breath, vapor. They knew that the curse was real and that they were to eventually die. And in chapter six, we see, again, this confirmed and we see the constraint that the curse has on our lives. Chapter six, verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So here again, in chapter six of Genesis, we see God confirm the reality of the curse, the reality that we will return to dust, the reality that we will die. Our life is constrained to a maximum of 120 years. So my friends, as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter one, the preacher is not saying anything that is new. He acknowledges and recognizes that this is something that has always been as a result of the fall. Life, because of the fall, is always and will always be like a breath, like a vapor. And so the preacher is now in such a helpful and pointed way reaffirming that and now helping us think through how does that affect us? How does that shape the way in we, which we live? If life is a vapor, if life is a breath, how are you and I to live a good life? That's what I wanna spend the rest of our time thinking about this morning. How does it affect our life? If life truly is vanity, how do we live in light of that? Point number one, that I think the preacher would tell us, and I've already alluded to it, point number one is we must accept death. We must embrace the reality that you and I will one day die. You see, the preacher is saying that life is like the smoke that comes from a candle that you extinguish. It's there one one moment and it's gone the next. But there's an inclination that I have, that all of us have, to live as though that weren't true. We wanna take that candle and make it out to be a trick candle. We so often think that, no, the flame is gonna come back. It's going to keep going, especially in our youth and in our middle age. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to accept death. We don't want to face the fact that we will one day die. We treat life as a trick candle. We think the flame is going to come back, and we deny our frailty. We deny the reality of the curse. Our culture, and this seeps so easily into the church, our culture does everything possible to deny the reality that they will one day die. Nobody in society wants to think about death. Why do you think nursing homes are so prominent in our society? 
We don't want to see people get sick and ill. As great as nursing homes are, I'm not trying to bash on nursing homes. We, we want to not think about that though. So we have care facilities for people who are close to death to go to. But that happens as well to, to you and to me. We don't want to think about, even as Christians, the fact that we will one day die. There was a, a philosopher by the name of Peter Kreeft who said, if you're typically modern, your life is like a man with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. And then one day you find a rhinoceros in the middle of the house. The rhinoceros is death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. Multiple diversions. Multiple diversions. We so easily divert our minds from the reality of thinking about death. We don't want to embrace it. And the preacher knows this. This is not something new to the 20th second century. This is something that has always been existent. And the preacher knows this, and the preacher tries to, throughout his argument of Ecclesiastes, to pop the bubble of the insulation that we create. We create this bubble to protect ourselves from the accepting the reality of death. And the preacher lovingly and caringly seeks to pop that bubble all throughout the book. We see it in the text that I read. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 11. The preacher is so direct. He says, there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He's saying you will die and one day, in terms of from the lens of the people of this earth, you will be forgotten. Look with me at chapter two, verse 14. Again, he seeks to pop this bubble. He says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What is that event? The event is death. Again, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, there's so many examples I could say, but just trying to show you that chapter by chapter, he is trying to pop this bubble, trying to remind us that we must accept death. Chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity, all is vapor. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. The curse. The curse. In a life of uncertainty, brothers and sisters, one thing is certain, it's that we will die. We will die. And we must keep in mind, again, first and foremost, that death is unnatural. Death is unnatural. 
It wasn't part of God's original creation. Death is a reminder of the curse. Every time we see death, we are reminded that we have sinned against a holy God. We are to blame for death, not God. We have brought this upon ourselves. But also, the preacher, please understand again, he is not telling us about death because he is uncaring or that he's unloving or that he's strangely morbid. He's just direct. He's just real. He's near the end of his life and he's experienced more than perhaps anyone had at that time. And he knows that He's about to die. And he's trying to, in a loving way to show us as people who are still alive, you must accept the fact that you will one day die. Because you see, here's the beauty of this. The preacher's point is not to make us feel depressed or in despair. I know there's a weightiness that comes with accepting the reality that we will one day die. But the preacher is actually doing this because he's writing a book for us on how to live, on how to please God, on how not to waste your life. And all throughout this book, the preacher is reminding us, if you want to live a meaningful and good life, you must first and foremost accept the reality that you will die. The 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said, as men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. We don't want to think about death because we want to be happy but the preacher is telling us the exact opposite. If you don't accept death, if you don't acknowledge that your days on this earth are like a vapor, you will never be happy. And you will spend your life living for what is really, in the end, not important. Just to think of a means of application. <laughs> Sin from a, death, a deathbed never looks appealing. If you're sick, if you're ill, sin never looks appealing. There have been a couple times in my life where I got, became very ill, wasn't sure if death could be around the corner, and in those moments, sin looks disgusting. We see it for what it truly is. Accept the fact that you will die one day, believer. See sin for what it truly is. Don't let it trick you. Don't let it allure you. See sin from the viewpoint of a deathbed, knowing that every single one of us will one day stand before a holy God. 
And that is why, as the preacher says at the end of the book, to fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. Accept death and fear God and keep his commandments. If you are a believer here this morning, I would challenge you, are you living in light of the reality that you will one day die? Are you living a life, fellow believer, in a manner in which you are seeking to please Yahweh every day because in the end, that is what matters in this transient life. And if you are an unbeliever here this morning, I would plead with you, stop presuming, stop pretending, stop thinking that death is some far away reality because you're not in control. You don't know the number of the days God has set for you. Today could be your day, unbeliever, where you have to face God. Don't waste your life. Don't spend it as the world is doing. Stop believing lies and come to Christ. Put your faith in him today. Repent of your sins and glory in the hope that you have in the perfect Savior. Stop presuming upon death. Accept it. Number two. <laughs> a little bit of a different tone. Appreciate life. Appreciate life. If life is vapor, if life is transient, if it's vanity, yes, we must accept death. But number two, the preacher, I think if he were here this morning, would tell us, appreciate life. Enjoy life. You see, the message of Ecclesiastes does not lead us to a place where we should feel despair or depressed, even as we accept death. Just the opposite. The preacher is trying to help us understand how is it that we enjoy life? How is it that we can appreciate life? How is it that we can live a good life? A good life. A purposeful life. And again, at the end, he tells us that begins with fearing God and keeping his commandments. That's the foundation, yes, but let's build upon that. It also comes from having a right perspective about the world around us. You see, the curse is real. Our lives are transient. They're like a vapor. But there's good news. Although the curse and sin and evil have to an extent tainted every part of our world and our society, it has not uncreated the good world that God has originally made. That good world that we were meant to live in, it's, it's still here. Yes, sin and evil are real and we face the curse every day, but the good world has not been uncreated. And so, what would the preacher tell us? How then are we to live? Well, look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 
verse 24. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 24. The preacher says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Again, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter three. We see this same idea repeated in verses 12 and 13. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13, the preacher says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them, mankind, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Here's the key. This is God's gift to man. This is God's gift to man. God has created a good world. And we as his image bearers are meant to enjoy his good gifts in this world. Enjoy today, the preacher would say, what God has given you. Enjoy the gifts that he has uniquely made you with. Enjoy the possessions that he has graciously given to you. Enjoy the opportunities that he has provided for you. Enjoy the relationships that he's allowed for you to have. You see, I don't think the preacher is some pessimistic individual who just sees the world around us and sees bleakness. I think the preacher would be someone that would tell us, enjoy life. It's a gift from God. Enjoy life. Go for a hike. Learn a new language. Ride a bike. FaceTime your family. Tell someone about Jesus. Cook your favorite meal. Enjoy an evening in the theater. Make a new friend. Spend time with the sick. Discover a new song. Paint a picture. Snorkel in the ocean. In the ocean. Serve in the church. Learn to play a new instrument. Travel to a national park. Adopt a child. Work hard at your career. Weep with a friend who is grieving. Give away your money and your wealth and be generous. Run a marathon. Move overseas. Be a missionary. Go shopping. Fall in love. Read a book. Serve in our church's abortion outreach ministry. Pray for your fellow believers. Pray for people you've never even met. Spend your life investing in the next generation. It's all a gift. All of the possessions, all of the opportunities, all the relationships, the preacher is telling us it's all a gift. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. One preacher has said, not this preacher, different preacher. One preacher has said, the message of Ecclesiastes teaches us that life is a gift, not gain. Life is a gift, not gain. Turn with me back to our text. There's a, a, starking, a stark question that the preacher asks. Verse three, what does man gain 
by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. In other words, the preacher is saying, what's the surplus that man gains from all his efforts under the sun? What's the, what's the leftovers? What can he take with him in light of life being like a vapor? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. We can't gain anything from the gifts that God has given us. And yet we spend so much of our time seeking to gain things in this world when the preacher is saying, stop wasting your life doing that. Life is a gift. It's not for your personal gain. Some people say, eat, drink, be merry, because that's all there is. That's it. There's no other point to life. And the preacher would come and shatter that. And he would say, oh yes, eat, drink, and be merry, but not because what, that, what there is, or excuse me, not because that is what there is, but because that is what, that is what there is. That's what God's given us. So yes, enjoy it, but enjoy it with hearts full of gratitude, knowing that God has provided this for you. And let me just frame this in the context of relationships as well. View your relationships as a gift, not as gain. Look at what the preacher says, Ecclesiastes 4 Starting in verse nine, the preacher says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail Against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here the preacher is telling us the value of other people in our lives. Relationships are a gift. Seek to love your neighbor as yourself. Stop seeing people as a means for personal gain so easy for us to do that. So easy to look at a relationship, at an at a individual, and ask, what can this person give to me? How can this person benefit me? What can I gain from this individual? And I think the preacher would say, you've missed the point. you missed the point. All the relationships in your life, they're a gift. They're not gain. Thinking about Jesus, I love reading through the Gospels and just considering his care and his love for others. Here was a man who was perfect in this. He saw other people 
all kinds of people, people of power, people in need, people who are hurting, people who are sick, people who are confused. And he saw them not as a means for personal gain, for personal advantage. He saw them as a gift. And he sought to lay down his life for them. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to flourish? Do you want to live a good life? Be like Jesus. Invest in other people. See them as gifts. Serve them. Lay down your life for them. So Placerita, how are we doing this morning? Are we seeing life as a gift? Or are we seeing life as gain? So the preacher says, number one, we must accept death. Number two, we must appreciate life. And finally, number three, I think in reflecting on the message as a whole of Ecclesiastes, the preacher would tell us to anticipate fulfillment. Anticipate fulfillment. Life here, again, it's a vapor. It's gone before we know it. We're here one day and we're gone the next and we will be forgotten. But there is a stark contrast throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And we see it perhaps most clearly in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 14. Turn with me there. Ecclesiastes three, verse 14. Listen to what the preacher says. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. You feel the weightiness of that statement? All throughout this book, he's been telling us life is vanity. He repeats that in 29 other verses all throughout. But there's this Beautiful reminder for us here in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 14, that what God does endures forever. What he does will never fade away. Oh yes, we will be forgotten by the generations that come, but you will never be forgotten by our holy God. And his works will persist and his promises will come to pass. And so the point here is that we are to anticipate this day when God will fulfill all that he has said, what he, has, what he does endures forever. We must build our lives around this anticipation that one day God will make all things right and we will be reunited with him forever. We will one day be united with him in his presence and spend all the rest of our days with him. Going up a few verses, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. 
Listen to what the preacher says. God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into man's heart. You and I, we live in the confines of of time. In the context here, the first eight verses are some beautiful poetry about time, words that are familiar to us, words that we hear often at funerals, even the funerals of unbelievers. But the point here that the preacher is making is that God does not exist within the confines of time. God has always and continues and will always to see the whole picture. He's able to see the big picture and he knows exactly what he is doing, why he is doing it, and that includes the smallest details in my life and in your life. And he, in his own perfect time, will fulfill all of his promises and will make everything, the preacher says, beautiful. And I, for one, am so glad that we can rest on that promise, that we can rest on that truth because there is evil all around us. Look what the preacher says in chapter four, verse one. He says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We have to live in attention here, believers. Yes, we are to enjoy life and appreciate all the good gifts God has given us. But all throughout time, Evil atrocities happen every single day. Every day, people around our planet are abused, are misused. We hear about some of them in the, in the news, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I want fulfillment. I want to enjoy this life but I don't want this life to go on forever. You see, it's like death. When we see someone in pain or when we see a a hurtful situation, we want to ignore it. We don't want to embrace it. And for us, those words in Ecclesiastes 4 just, it kind of just doesn't resonate with us. Is that really true that it's better for someone who hasn't even been born than it is for us? But the preacher's a wise man. And the preacher knows how evil humanity can be. And that's why he says up in verse 16, chapter three, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. But I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Judgment is coming, believers. There's some pain 
some events that happen in this world, we don't have an answer. I think of the book of Job. <laughs> Didn't really get an answer for all of his pain and his suffering. There's events like that that happen all of the time. And we don't have an answer in this lifetime. But we do know God is gonna judge all of the evil deeds of this world. And those people will be held accountable. You see, vanity, the concept that life is like a vapor, that life is like a breath, understood properly, it's actually good news. It's actually really good news. I would call it the gospel <laughs> of vanity. It is good news that this life isn't gonna carry on forever as it currently is. Because the curse is all around us, evil's all around us, sin is all around us. But what God does will endure forever. And so the point here, believers, is that we must anticipate the day of fulfillment. We must enjoy this life and have one foot in this life but have another foot in the future hope that we have in the gospel. We must anticipate what is to come. You see, originally we were expelled from the garden and we have been living in a cursed world since then. But the day will come when God will bring us back because of his grace, because of his mercy through the gospel of his son, the day will come when we will one day be united with God and be with him forever. And we will be back not just in the garden, but in an entire universe transformed. A whole new heaven and a whole new earth. I'm not trying to get weird right now, but I just want to read what our fulfillment is as believers. And I want you guys to close your eyes and to just envision this as I read what is to come for us as believers. This is the fulfillment that we must anticipate. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, 
write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Believers, (laughs) that is the glorious fulfillment that we must await, that we must anticipate, that we must set our minds on. Yes, life here in this present earth under the curse is like a vapor, it's like a breath. But one day, we will dwell and be with God forever. When I started seminary, uh, man, five, six years ago, I kind of lost track. Um, I knew I was in trouble (laughs) early on because I'm not a reader. I'll just admit it in front of everyone. I don't like reading. Never have, probably never will. And I remember getting through the first week of courses and seeing how much I was expected to read that semester. And I remember going home to Sarah and being like, what have I done? I don't even know if I read like five books in my whole lifetime. I've got to read five books in like a month now. Uh, So quickly I had to figure out, well, how do you read well? Because there's no way I can read every single page of these 4,500 pages at my slow rate. And I learned a secret early on. I learned that oftentimes, if you go to the preface of the book, the author will give you essentially his entire argument in the preface. He's gonna lay out what he's about to do. And so I would read that preface really, really carefully, make sure I understood it, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. And then, Uh, Speed reading might be even generous. We would just start to work through that book at a nice, quick, breezy pace. And I was able to understand that argument. I was able to understand what he was doing, he or she was doing throughout the book because I knew the preface, and the preface was often very telling. This morning, what I have sought to do is to give us a preface for the book of Ecclesiastes, an introduction. There's so much more to be said. We barely have scratched the surface, but I know it's a book that is often confusing and perplexing. And this morning, I I hope I have provided a sort of preface of what the preacher is trying to get across. And I would encourage you to continue to study this book more and more on your own because it has ministered so much to my soul in these past few months. And we need this wisdom. We need this message in our world. So, PBC, live life like a vapor. 
Live life knowing it's a breath. Live life in such a way where you accept the fact that you will one day die. Appreciate the life God has given and the good gifts that he has provided and anticipate the fulfillment of what our great God has yet to do. And again, this morning, if you're not a believer, I would plead with you, make this be the day in which you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Stop presuming upon death. After the service, we'll have some of our uh, leaders appear or in the back, and they'd be more than happy to talk with you about what it means to repent and put your faith in Christ. And believers who are in the room, if you need prayer, they'd be more than happy to pray with you as well. And my hope is that as we leave today, that we would consider carefully the words of the preacher and his message and what they mean for the rest of our days here on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we are so amazed by your word. I thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. I thank you for the message of the preacher here in this book. God, I pray that you would help us to live in light of this message, in light of this preface. Help us to live wisely. Help us to fear you and keep your commandments and to live in a way in which we acknowledge that life is vanity, it's a vapor, it's a breath. Help us, God, to come to grips with the reality of, of death. It's, again, it's unnatural and it brings about grief and pain. We know that. But, God, we would live foolishly if we wouldn't embrace the reality that we will one day die. And, God, help us to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us here on this earth. Help us to have hearts full of gratitude and God, help us to be, as Peter calls it, elect exiles. Help us to remember that we are exiles, we are sojourners. This world in its present state is not our home. We look forward to the day of fulfillment. We look forward to being with you forever in the new heaven and the new earth because we know that in your timing you make all things beautiful and what you do endures forever. God, I think Jesus is our vision for this. He has perfectly lived out this message. So as we seek to be faithful to do what we have heard this morning, help us to consider the life and ministry of Christ. Help us to follow him. Help us to be like him, to worship him, to live for him. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified in all of it. Because it is all truly a gift from you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.